This is Residence 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How you doing? Tis I, Nicholas of Henningen, on Literary London. Uh, coming at you from uh, Great Britain's greatest city. Yes, the capital of the literary world. It's old London town. How you doing? I'm uh, still croaking a little bit. I've got my uh, my Edinburgh Festival flu. Still been hanging around, even though we're almost in the autumn now. Um, and uh, I hope you've had a good week since last we were together. Uh, we're going to talk local authors now. The Chiswick Book Fair is rapidly becoming uh, a fairly big... Uh, Chiswick Book Festival, I should say, is rapidly becoming uh, rather a big event. Um, and last time I was with you, we met some local Chiswick authors. So I thought we would continue. And so this week on Literary London, it's local uh, Chiswick authors, part two, live, as it were, from Waterstones on Chiswick High Road. And without further ado, have a listen to these. So next up, next up, we have Jane Hayward. Jane, where are you? Come on up. Now we all know how the 1960s was depicted. It was the swinging 60s, the permissive society. The Beatles sang, love, love me do, and we did. But behind the pop songs and the parties hid dark places. Things happened that were kept secret for years and years. In fact, in some people's cases, have remained secret. But mine hasn't, because I put mine in a book. And one reviewer said, you transported me to a very different 60s from mine. Because ordinary families in those days had one code for their daughters. And it was no sex before marriage and every mother wanted her daughter to march up the aisle in a white dress and have earned it. And my mother was no exception. So when I, as a schoolgirl in December 1964, told her I was pregnant, all hell broke loose. But this is no depressing saga. This is a story of survival and compassion. And I have been told that it is amusing, which surprised me. <laughs> my punishment for the shame I brought on my family was to go to a mother and baby home. And in this book, you will meet several of the girls I spent weeks with, spanning the classes and the generations from a 15-year-old schoolgirl to a 34-year-old midwife. And yes, I wondered how the hell she'd got there as well. <laughs> uh, one reviewer wrote, the love expressed through the baby boxes makes this story truly engrossing. And one reader said, this book is unflinchingly honest. Now you might be shocked by the end of my memoir, or you might have the baby box broke my heart and uplifted me all at the same time. <laughs> Cheating. Terrible story. <laughs> Not good. Right. Um, next up, we have the wonderful Josephine Perry. So six years ago, I was standing on a beach in Melbourne, Australia, and the waves were, quite frankly, terrifying. I was really scared. Even the Aussies next to me looked pretty intimidated. And the commentator said over the tannoy, you cannot change those waves. What you can do 
is change how you feel about them. For me, that was my light bulb moment. It really made me realise what I did in that race was down to me, my attitude, my mindset. And I went on to have the best race of my life. When I got back to the UK, quit my job, spent five years at university, trained to be a sports psychologist. One thing was missing when I was training, and that was some kind of manual or toolkit to tell me what to do as a sports psychologist. There was nothing that said, if someone's got no confidence, this is how you help them. If someone's frozen with nerves, if they're full of fear, how would you help them? If they're lobbing tennis rackets across a court in anger, what would you do? If somebody's really, really injured and they're too terrified to come back in case they get the pain of the injury again, how do you support that athlete? So I went away, did loads of research, and I wrote that manual, and this is it, Performing Under Pressure. And it looks at the nine reasons that athletes will go and see a sports psychologist, and then it looks at 64 different activities that you might do to build your confidence, to reduce anxiety, to perform much better. And it breaks it down into five areas, which helpfully stand for grasp. So G is for goals, setting your goals, being able to stick with them, following through whatever happens. R is for racing, how you really focus when you're <laughs> under pressure, trying to do your best in a competition. A is for awareness, and that's about being really self-aware, knowing your traits, your characteristics, how you behave. S is for support, and P is for preparation. <laughs> we had to find out what the P was for. <laughs> okay. um, ladies and gents, next up we have Martin Godleyman. published by Zeitbooks. There are two important aspects of the action of my novel, my central character and the time in which his story is set. It is 1996, a time many of you here will remember. Just 23 years ago, but it will never return. It was a historical moment of transition, a unique time bubble. Not the pre-tech world, not quite the social media mobile phone world. If you didn't have a computer then, you probably went to the library to use the internet and write your emails. A worldwide opportunity, a blank canvas, the imagination curdles, money, and inevitably, pornography. A window of opportunity for the most immense, unpoliced, cheap thrill ever in history. Into this world steps my character, my main character, Alan Dakers, a 60-year-old business consultant on his last assignment to help a local company reduce its workforce without legal recriminations to save it money. Because shutting things down is the sort of thing he does, and he's very good at it. This small Hertfordshire town is somewhere he hasn't been, been to since he left as a 16-year-old back in the 1950s, driving round. He remembers the last two years of school and that cabal of five children, four boys, one girl. He remembers the faces. He remembers the names. Those five hideous names. He remembers the bullying. And he remembers the feelings of anger and shame that he thought he dealt with. 
but he has something now that he didn't have then. He has the internet. And though at first it seems a wild, impossible, lunatic idea, he finally realises he can find those five people. Four years on. The people who did those terrible things to him, he can find them anonymously. And he now has all the time in the world and the power to take his revenge. equation? And the answer is a polymath. <laughs> Edward Lear, who's the subject of my book, loved horrible jokes. And one of his favourites was, where did Noah keep his honey? In his archives. <laughs> but he was also a Victorian polymath. And that's really what my book is about, is how Lear fits into the social and cultural life of his time. Many of you will know Edward Lear, of course, as the author of The Owl and the Pussycat and other nonsense verses, but he was also a wonderful artist who taught Queen Victoria to draw. This is one of his parrot studies from when he was only a teenager. He was also a scientist whose work was consulted by Charles Darwin, no less. And he did this rather interesting study, <laughs> um, which is, I'm sure some people can't see it, but I'll pass it round, the owly pussycat. This is 30 years before the poem you know and love, and it's actually a hybrid beast that is owl above the branch and cat below the branch, showing his interest in animal hybridity and animals like the duck-billed platypus, which some people thought was a cross between a beaver and a seal, actually inflect his nonsense verse. Last of all, Edward Lear was actually a composer and a musician. And this is what my book does that nobody's ever done before. It's full of completely original research and things you won't find in Jenny Uglow's biography. But in particular, what I've done is find out, record, and um, make available Edward Lear's music. And one of the real insights of doing that was discover to discover that all of his poetry is really a song. And one of the songs that he wrote about his friend's Tennyson's verse is called um, sweet and low, sweet and low, wind of the western sea. And that's actually the jumbly chorus. <laughs> now, if your interest in Edward Lear has been piqued, which I hope it has, Sarah is actually in the main festival over the weekend, and my mind has now gone completely blank about when it is. But I'm Saturday, sure Saturday, two fifteen. Do <laughs> come. I am actually supplying free wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Leon Sandimans and dear Leon Sam Sandimans are also sponsoring it, so that there is a, a bottle of champagne to one lucky ticket holder. Ooh. So if your heart is not warmed by philanthropy, it can be warmed by alcohol. <laughs> Thank you, sir. More cheating, but anyway, never mind. Right, next up we have the lovely Junior Drum. There we are, Springwell. 
which is set against a background of social change following the Second World War. It explores relationships and responses to the unfolding events and issues of those years. But it starts in 1943. Bombs are falling all around South London. A baby is born. But where is the mother? What has happened to her? This is the story of that baby, Christine Priest. Many, many years later, she relates it to an unexpected but surprisingly welcome visitor to the 18th century manor house called Springwell. She begins, today is the day my lover died. I will never know whether he still recognized me. She tells her visitor about her childhood, how her auntie Vi demonstrated her resentment of her, how visits to her grandfather in Eastbourne opened up a happier world, and how her first love affair ended. She describes the prejudice she encountered when she became pregnant, and how Andrew, nicknamed Finchie, abandoned her. She wonders who adopted the baby. There was no other option for her in those days. She recounts how her growing relationship with a work colleague resulted in marriage. Oliver, her husband, was a writer, but also a passionate supporter of the 60s peace movement. He is troubled by the actions he was forced to take during his national service in what was then Malaya. She is haunted by the forced adoption of her baby. Together, they try to overcome their issues. By telling her story, <laughs> She is able to reinvent the major episode of her life. <laughs> We're over halfway through, folks. Already. Doesn't seem possible. Now, next up, we have a returning speaker. Uh, we have Molly Arbuthnot. Um, last year I came with my first book, Oscar the Fairy Cat, and this year with a shortlist book prize under my belt, I'm coming with my new book, Oscar the Hebridean Cat. I don't know if you can all see it back, but you can come find me later to look at the pictures if you want. Um, my first story is about, uh, Os at the end of my first story, Oscar meets another cat called Mercy, and the idea is that Oscar and Mercy are going to go on to have lots of adventures all over the world together, based on places and people that are important to me. Their first adventure together is the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, a place very close to my heart and based on my mother's nanny called Morag, who was a wonderful woman, a brilliant baker and had the kindest heart and is based on the real Katie Morag, I like to tell people. It teaches children about Hebridean life, the thatched houses, cowries, cockle shells, mussels and seaweed. And um, in the story, Oscar and Mercy rescue Morag as the tide is coming in, and so I suppose it teaches children about the perils of the ocean too. At the end of the story, it finishes with a party, and I think all of us here can testify that a party is the nicest way to spend one's time, and it incorporates all the characters from the first story whilst leaving the window open for Oscar and Mercy to go on and have adventures together. I started working with charities in relation to my books, 
and I pick a charity or find a charity that has some association to my stories. With this story, I'm working with a wonderful charity called Wilderness UK, who work with children who have mental difficulties by taking them out into the world. And we all know how good the outdoor life is for people's mental health. In our world full of uncertainty, I think it's really important to teach children to look out for others, to work as a team, and not to be afraid to do the right thing. Lessons might then filter through into the way we as humans live in the magical world around us, and I try to teach such lessons through my writing. I feel like the luckiest person alive that I can do something I love and it brings joy to others. And hopefully to you too, there's no greater gift in all the world. <laughs> Thank you, Molly. Now, next up, we have Mr. Robin Knight. Well, many thanks for this opportunity. You've no idea how difficult it is for books like this to get any publicity at all. My book is a biography of a World War II hero, Lieutenant Commander Mike Cumberledge, DSO and Bar Greek Medal of Honor. Mike was murdered in Sachsenhausen concentration camp near Berlin as the war was ending. He was 39. In this book, I try to recreate Mike's short life. A reviewer has called it a precious record of a remarkable man. Cumberledge was a poet, a polymath, and an artist, as well as a very brave man. There's the pre-war part. Mike's skipper beautiful ocean-going yachts, mostly in the Mediterranean for wealthy Americans had a glamorous wife, and lived in Cap d'Antibes. During the early part of the war, he had a succession of jobs in naval intelligence in Marseille, on General de Gaulle's staff in London, and in the Cape Verde Islands. Early in 1941, he was put in charge of a special operations executive paranaval force in the eastern Mediterranean. He fought in the Aegean, was wounded, returned to occupy Crete three times, and twice tried to blow up the Corinth Canal. Captured in May 1943, he spent six months in Mauthausen death camp in Austria, where he was severely tortured. He was moved to Sachsenhausen. He spent 21 months in solitary confinement on a diet of Wurzels. The last part of the book centers on the post-war search for information about his fate. Not until the end of 1946 was his death confirmed. Writing this book was a global treasure hunt over two years. One discovery led to another all over the world. Books like this are very unfashionable today, but I hope you give it a try. Thank you. You had one and a half seconds left, Robin. You could have said something more. I'll give it to a lady who follows. <laughs> uh, Tracy, you're not getting the extra second. Of the right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, next up, Tracy Reese. Hi, everyone. I'm Tracy, Richard and Judy, best selling author. Darling Blue is my fourth novel, and it's a thumping good read kind of a novel. It's set in Richmond in the 1920s and it focuses around three women. There's Blue, whose father gets really drunk at her 21st birthday party and makes an absurd toast that throws her love life into chaos. There's Blue's stepmother, Midge, 
who loves the family with all her heart but is terrified of losing them. She's never felt good enough and she's also keeping a very big secret from them. And then there's Delphine, a young woman from the East End who's on the run from an abusive marriage. She falls in love with Richmond and with Blue and her family, but the shadow of her violent husband is always stretching over her. Readers have called the characters unforgettable and have said that when they finished reading it, they really, really missed them and wish they could pop up Richmond Hill and have a cup of tea with the girls. <laughs> um, I wanted to move away from the 1920s stereotypes about decadence and champagne. So my characters discuss their problems over tea and cake. They go to the Roebuck and drink pints of Best Mild and they take long walks by the river, of course. Um, it's a love story. It's a family drama and a thriller all rolled into one. It's full of witty conversations and amazing 20s fashions and, of course, descriptions of beautiful Richmond. Um, it's a story about friendship and kindness and people and how we can hurt or help each other. <coughs> so, will Blue untangle her crazy love life? Will Midge ever tell her family the truth? And if she does, will she lose everything? Will Delphine ever be truly safe from her horrible husband, Foley? Bye, Darling Blue, and find out. <laughs> six whole seconds left. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, lovely stuff. Right, um, next up, we have our one and only cookery writer of the evening. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Eleanor Ford. childhood was split between London and Indonesia, so I grew up eating exotic, vibrant food, uh, chicken satay in salty, sweet peanut sauces, um, pork slow-roasted in turmeric and ginger, uh, carrot pickled so much that it made your mouth pucker, and um, pancakes stained green with pandan leaves and filled with fresh grated coconut made sticky with palm sugar. As an adult, I came to realise that these are flavours we don't know well in this country. We don't have a tradition of <coughs> Indonesian restaurants here, and not much has been written about food. So I made it my mission to write my book, Fire Islands, about the recipes and food stories of the world's largest archipelago. This is a land of rice paddies and volcanoes, of silver-sanded beaches and rainforests. Gamelan and Batik, the original Spice Islands. To research the book, I moved my family, my young children, back to Indonesia last year with me to cook with as many people as I could. I went to the best restaurant chefs and to street traders, to home cooks and even to the royal palace kitchen in Java. Um, I wanted to document this food that's both fragrant as you'd expect from Southeast Asian food, with lemongrass, lime leaves, ginger, chili, garlic. Yet it's also comforting with creamy coconut and nutty sauces. Most of all, and crucially to me, I wanted to make the recipes really accessible and easy for cooks here. So I hope you might be tempted to bring a taste of Indonesia to your kitchen.
I'm hungry. <laughs> that was lovely stuff. Thank you, Eleanor. Okay, next up we have Claire Cassie. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Claire, and I'd like to tell you about my book, Sunny Side Up. So I'll put my glasses on. Sunny Side Up, Eggs Over Easy, of full English. Millie Henderson has had plenty of practice whipping up breakfast and making beds over the years. So when she finds herself a financially squeezed widow at 60, running a B&B seems a perfect answer. She can live where she works and work where she lives. Her adult children worry for her. She should be putting her feet up, retiring to sunnier climes, or going on that obligatory cruise, not tripping over piles of ironing or bumper packs of bacon. But those dreams have been cruelly snatched away, and Millie finds herself having to make a living, single-handed, for the first time in 40 years. Of course, never knowing who you are going to invite into your house is a worry, and along with the gift of a pet pig and resident ghost, Millie has to contend with a whole host of colourful and often unpredictable guests. Guests like that pretty little thief eating her boiled egg so innocently in the dining room yesterday, or that shifty-looking Mr. Cook constantly checking his phone as he nervously drank his coffee. Can Millie stick the course? Sunnyside Up is the second book in the Willow Cottage trilogy, which follows the stories of three consecutive owners of an imposing 15th century 16-bedroom property which they all run as a B&B. It's a big change of lifestyle for each new owner. They all have their own stories to tell and buy each, um, each buy the property with fresh hopes for their future. The house exists. My mother Sheila, the original B&B queen and inspiration for the story, ran it very successfully as a B&B for many years. Guests loved its beams and creaky staircases and her stories about ghosts errant guests and the secret escape tunnel, which ran under the house uh, and was frequented by pirates, kept them Okay, Claire, thank you. Now, um, fresh from his book signing, which is only just finished downstairs, <laughs> with just two minutes uh, allowed, is um, James O'Brien. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is a, a, an astonishing discipline for me. I do three 20-minute monologues every single morning, so confining <laughs> my ramblings into two minutes is, is tricky. The book has its genesis in my job as a radio phoning host and a realisation about probably five or six years ago that people with the strongest opinions often struggled the most to tell you why they thought what they thought. So I changed that day. I stopped asking people what they thought um, and started asking them instead why they thought what they thought. And then as Trump and Brexit gathered pace, I, I, I found myself unable to continue <coughs> working at the, at the BBC for, for reasons of impartiality. At the BBC, of course, if, if Galileo Galilei was there to explain the theory of heliocentrism to you, you'd have to have Nigel Lawson um, <laughs> on there as well to explain why Galileo is wrong about everything because I say so. Nigello um, Lawsini, perhaps. Um, and then I started writing a book about why people were so profoundly wrong to begin with about Brexit and Donald Trump. So I've been incredibly embarrassed by how well both of those projects have gone <laughs> in the intervening two years, culminating today, of course, in that massive triumph in the Scottish courts for, for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his continuing mission to deliver this nonsense 
that apparently 17.4 million people voted for. But there are, there are plenty of other issues in the book as well, all of which sort of hover around this same principle. There are frightened and angry people. There are friends. Mm. There'll be people here today who, who think that I'm the Antichrist. But it's because you're wrong. <laughs> and, and the reason why you're wrong is that we have spent three decades cultivating a media model that profits from ignorance and profits from anger and profits from fear. If you want to really bring it down to brass tacks, just, just throw your eyes across the road at the fun fair next time it's on the green and uh, work out what gets the longest queue, the ghost train or the speak your weight machine. Um, we have a country where the ghost train, we're enthralled to the ghost train, and we have been for the best part of three decades. This is a speak your weight machine, but with all the thrills and spills of a ghost train. So what it does... <laughs> Great stuff that was. Yes, I should have mentioned, by the way, because the writers only get two minutes to talk about their book, and if they go over the two minutes, they get that ah sound. But you kind of picked up on that, didn't you? So that's it. Thank you very much to Waterstones for hosting us. Thanks to the Chiswick Book Festival. If you'd like to get in touch with me, as always, it's radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. My two shows, Pals and Romeo and Juliet, finish this weekend. So I'm going to have a lie down for a few days. I'll hopefully see you next week. This is Literary London. I'm Nick Hennigan on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>